0: Welcome everybody. And this is, I think my favorite podcast so far because I am joined by Dahlia Shindlin, who I have known for 34, 35 years, I believe it is. 35 years this summer. I know, ouch is right. Um, As I am celebrating my 50th birthday this month, I guess I'm having a little bit of a blast from the past by talking Dahlia today. Uh, Those of you who haven't known Dahlia for 35 years, she is a public opinion researcher, political strategist. She's worked on eight national campaigns in Israel, where she is talking to us from today, and on campaigns in 15 other countries. And she has worked with Truth and Consequences contributor Jeremy Rosner, and she survived that experience. So you can say for the record that she is truly a remarkable individual. Uh, No, but seriously, Dahlia, thank you so much for joining me today
1: always a pleasure for 35 years now
0: for 35 not they haven't all been pleasure 35 pleasurable 35 years I think that's right that's right because the years that we weren't in touch were not pleasurable that's true that's exactly right that's exactly right but Dahlia and I speak frequently (laughs) she's one of my favorite people in the entire world and I mean that sincerely and I'm so excited to talk to her today so we are going to talk today about the election in Israel, which is going to be occurring on March 23rd, just uh, less than three weeks away. And if this feels like maybe you've heard this story before, this is, help me out Dahlia, how many elections have you had since 2019? This
1: is number four since April of 2019. And let me just explain that we have not actually had a permanent government since November, 2018, when the elections were called, even the government we have now which was formed, the coalition was formed after the last, the third election cycle, Uh, this government was formed in May of 2020. It was really only ever intended to be an emergency Corona government. So even this one has its wings clipped. We haven't had a stable government since November, 2018.
0: Wow, that is rather extraordinary. Um, So can you explain, and this is a tough question to answer, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Can you explain why that is happening? Why have you had so many elections in the past two years?
1: Well, there are so many layers of why, but I think the first uh, easiest and most technical layer is that we have a very different kind of political system from the US, obviously. We have a parliamentary system. We have single constituency proportional representation, which means that all you have to do is cross a 3.25% electoral threshold to get into parliament. And if that sounds low, it used to be a lot lower. (laughs) This is the highest it's ever been. And that still allows many, many parties in which means that once the, you know, once the elections are held, uh, we have anywhere from eight to 12 parties often getting into parliament, Knesset in Israel. And to form a government, a coalition, you need 61 out of 120 parliamentary seats. You need a majority. <clears throat> um, and in the past, those coalitions have been held together. Often, you know, you'll have four or five parties in a coalition. And naturally, you try to get coalition partners that are relatively, <clears throat> relatively aligned ideologically so that they can pass policies, pass laws, you know, have majority votes and uh, hopefully reflect the people. Right. Um, and so yeah. when you have a coalition that is relatively ideologically aligned, they do okay. We call those, you know, right-wing or left-wing coalitions. Maybe we say it's a right-center coalition if it involves a centrist party in addition to right-wing parties. but. We don't need to make this too long because the truth you know the reality of Israeli politics is very simple for the last 12 years uh 12 years no 11 years let's say no yeah, well, almost 12 uh, Israel has been governed by one leader Net- Benjamin Netanyahu he's the head of the Likud party it's a right-wing party and he has generally had right-wing coalitions that that include right-wing parties and right-wing religious parties although one of those governments in recent years when we say government we mean the coalition also included a centrist party they did okay But the most recent one between 2015 and 2019 was a a government, a coalition of all right wing parties, centrist and left wing parties were in the opposition. And that meant that they were fairly functional and they actually lasted close to a full term, which is absolutely not to be taken for granted in Israel. (laughs) But what happened was in April of 2019, we held elections because Israel, the Israeli electorate tilts to the right, there's a, you know, a slim majority of right-wing voters in the entire electorate, um, out of 120 parliamentary seats, 65 of them went to right-wing parties. You would think, snap, you've got a right-wing coalition, no problem. And that's what everybody expected to happen. But at the very last minute in the coalition negotiations, which are typically historically cutthroat in Israel, with every party bargaining for the best possible position within the coalition and the choice ministerial positions and sometimes negotiating policies that they should be doing while in government just to get into the coalition. In that stage, after April 2019, a small party of five seats led by Avigdor Lieberman who represents a, a, a declining constituency, a rather small constituency at this point of older immigrants from the former Soviet Union. He had five seats decided not to go into the coalition with Netanyahu. Now he's a very ideologically right. So yeah, I mean, that's a longer explanation, but I just want to give the numbers first. Um, he's a very small party. Five seats represents you know barely 4% of the voters, but without those five seats, Netanyahu only had 60 seats out of 120, not enough for that majority to pass legislation, He couldn't form the coalition. We went into a second round and some version of that has happened every time with slight differences along the way. Now, why didn't he want to go into the coalition with Netanyahu? That is a multi-layered question too. <laughs> <Can you give laughs> yes,
0: you like give everything. A simple answer, because there is a simple answer. No,
1: in, in Israel, if you want to if you want to know about Israeli politics, the first rule is that there are no simple answers. <laughs> but the truth is, <laughs> I don't want to por- portray it. I don't want to paint a picture of some unique exceptionalism over here on Israeli politics because <laughs> From my experience, working in many different countries around the world, I've got a secret that I can let you and the listeners in on as an insider political consultant. Politicians don't always tell the truth. That's tough. What? I know. groundbreaking. You can just stop right here, right?
0: Yeah. So So on on Lieberman, I mean, excuse me for, I I don't want to simplify this, but Uh, The major reason, perhaps, why he didn't want to go in a coalition with Bibi is because he just can't stand, as many Israelis feel in the the political world, he can't stand Benjamin Netanyahu and didn't want to join a coalition with him, and also didn't want to join a coalition, if I understand correctly, with religious parties. Because I mean, the the
1: policy reason, the reason that he wanted to tell the Israeli voters was that he wanted to stand tough on the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel, which have You know uh for people who aren't familiar they they really bring uh religious demands to the table and they uh insist that israel become more and more of a jewish state uh governed by religious law if they had their way but more than that what they really ask for is exceptional uh rules benefits or exceptions from from various policies and laws in israeli life for the ultra-orthodox community chief among them draft being drafted to the idf and lieberman had taken this on as one of his biggest issues of course israel's been trying to deal with that Unequal draft legislation for years, and it's you know it's been it's a saga that's gone on for decades. But he finally said, you know, I want to pass a draft law for real. If it's not passed, I'm not going to stay part of this coalition. That's what happened in 2018, and the, he in his uh, rhetoric, that was the reason he you know he didn't get enough of a promise uh, from Netanyahu about how to move ahead with the draft issue on the ultra orthodox. But I think most people really forgot about that because it was so overwhelmed by the perception. And probably reality of his personal political convictions. In other words, believing that Netanyahu's time was over, uh, not wanting to contribute to the creation of another Netanyahu government, maybe trying to leverage his position, you know, in the, in the sense of the physics understanding of leverage, which is that you have very, you know, use as little power as you have to go as far as you can. Right. Um, and he had his small party, declining electorate, but he thought maybe he's in the one position to be the kingmaker. And maybe the King Toppler, if I can say that, if that's a word, sure. um, and I, you know, some combination of the of the actual ideological and policy commitment versus uh, his when I say personal political uh, goals, I don't mean personal for Lieberman, uh, you know, like lining his pockets with money or anything. I just mean he wanted to remake the political map in Israel, right? And probably, you know, advance his own political position. Interestingly, it really didn't work in the long term he rose a little bit in the next elections he, he rose from 5 to 8 seats he went back down now he's really very stable at 7 seats in other words he's not really um, front and center in the israeli political map anymore uh, which is maybe what he thought he would be right, but right when there's so many small parties this is what this is really the key to understanding israeli politics when there are so many small parties and at present we have 14 parties Uh, running 13 that might actually pass the threshold we have 40 we have 39 running most of them aren't serious but there are 13 or 14 that actually stand a chance of crossing a threshold let's say it's been whittled down to 13 that means and there's only 120 seats that means there are many small parties so any of them could theoretically now have that kind of negotiating power because you need you know small numbers to top you up to 61 seats if you have enough parties who support you know uh Let's say Likud, for example, forming the coalition. But what the polls are showing now is that the parties that are loyal to Likud in terms of coalition building are not getting sixty-one.
0: Okay, let's 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 hold that off for a second. But before I get into what's going to happen, let's get a little bit more of the sort of the background detail. Now, in the last election, right, you had this coalition government formed with Benjamin Netanyahu and Benny Gantz, who is the leader of the uh, the Blue and the and White Party, right? And this was a major advance, right? He actually, if I'm correct correctly, Gantz's party got the most seats, correct?
1: No, no, no. Gantz's party got the most seats in one of the previous elections. You're just like an Israeli voter now. You're just like an Israeli voter because we can't keep straight these three election cycles. You would would have been correct in September. But in the March 2020 elections, Gantz got three seats more than blue and white.
0: But when Gantz got the most seats, he could not form a government, correct? Right. Right, right.
1: That's what happened in September.
0: So then after the March election, Gantz, after fighting uh, Netanyahu in three straight elections, basically surrendered and joined the coalition with Netanyahu. So does that mean that this election is going to be, is going to be another fight between Netanyahu and Benny Gantz?
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked that question because it gives you a (laughs) sense of the drama and humiliation of uh, Israeli elections. Humiliation is part of it, definitely. It is, and I have to give some credit uh, for coming up with that term to, one of the guests on our very first episode of my election podcast together with Angel Pfeffer called Election Overdose. Our first guest was David Halbfinger, who was then the bureau chief at the New York Times. And, he, and we said, what surprises you about Israeli elections? You've covered so many of them now. And he said, the level of humiliation that the politicians put them through. And, and he's right. And it just, I hadn't quite had the language to realize it maybe because I'm you know, uh, so inside of it. But Benny Gantz won 33 seats out of 120 parliamentary seats in the last election. He won over 30 seats in every one of those elections, right. in all the three elections. That's about 1.2 million votes, uh, either the biggest or the second biggest party each time. Okay? We're talking about a big slice of the Israeli public. Guess how many seats Gantz is winning in polls right now. When I say polls, I mean a lot of polls. He's okay. Don't guess. I'll I'm tell gonna you. Yeah, I'm going to guess.
0: I think it's like, guess? Okay, like guess. three or four.
1: Well, this week he's up to five. Okay.
0: Okay. I was close. <laughs> but pretty close.
1: I was close. By the way, most, you can't really have a party running at three because of the electoral threshold.
0: Right. The be- way the
1: math works out, it's the minimum is pretty much four seats, but uh, he has been running at four this entire time. There were, there were polls that showed him not crossing at all. Um, but now he seems to—he's having a good week or two weeks, let's say—he's averaging closer to five in the polls right now. So but that's yeah. how cutthroat the Israeli political scene is. Did I use the word cutthroat already? I'm just—I might have, just keep using it. But I think it's
0: it. a good—I mean, it's also—it seems one of the things Israeli politics that I think people would have a hard time understanding is that there there are often new parties that spring up each election and then they uh, disappear for the next election. So. You know, the fact that Likud uh, still exists and still a major party, is it, and Labour was the other major party in Israel, of course, still exists too, but they are a shell of their former self. And now Likud has actually had some people break away from it as well. We can get into that in a second. But so let me ask this question. The big, the big issue is, as it seems the case in every election, is at least in the last several years, is Benjamin Netanyahu, who somehow continues to re- maintain his political power. Um, and uh, how exactly... Uh, is he doing that? How does he maintain his political position the way that he has the past 12 years?
1: I mean, this really is sort of an enigma, right? He's been in power for so long. He's been in power since 2009. And that was his second term because he was also, of course, in power in the mid-1990s. He is the longest serving prime minister in Israel. In that sense, in some ways, you would have thought his time was just up because you know, in a democracy, most people don't want uh, a politician serving for that long. Let me remind people that we don't have term limits in Israel parliamentary system. If you win as leader of the party, there's no limitation on serving as prime minister. Um, but many people say he's been prime minister for too long. Even his supporters, it's gone on for too long. They even use the word freely, you know, amongst ourselves. It's like a dictatorship. So why haven't they kicked him out already? And just to add to that, of course, he's under investigation and has been be indicted and better. his trials are under, are underway right now for corruption on three counts of corruption. So, why have
0: we actually? They... Can be, I'm sorry, no, let's just step back for a second because, okay, again, this is the problem of talking about Israeli politics. There are so many onions, it's like it's like peeling an onion. But as you'd point out, he is on trial as we speak in a court in Jerusalem for corruption, yes. correct? He is,
1: he is for uh, fraud, breach of trust. Uh, I'm trying to remember how to translate the terms. <inaudible> Bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. He's okay. got three different cases against him.
0: And that has not really affected his his approval ratings in Israel.
1: Oh, I mean, if you're asking that, then you're not totally clear on the level of populism that Netanyahu has kind of brought to the Israeli political scene. I mean, as you so well know from the US and other countries where we have nationalist populist leaders, among their strongest selling points to their voters is that they are being persecuted and they are victims of persecution by dark forces within the state who don't want them to be in power because they're jealous. They're old corrupt elites who don't want uh, a leader who represents the true voice of the people. Netanyahu has absolutely capitalized on that idea. He has repeated it in various ways over the course of years but no more so than during the last two years since he was formally indicted. And as a result, not only has it not really hurt his uh, his vote share. In fact, I think in many ways it's it's part of why he retains his vote. Because you know, and here's where it gets a little complicated. I think the reason why Likud, his party, uh, retains such a strong segment of the Israeli side, and we should say they're not only running as the top party in in all polls, um, they're in the lead by a double seat margin. Yeah. So, you know, double digits of seats, not just percentages. So they're way ahead. And uh, it's true, however, that Likud hasn't been growing since in this election cycle. They're currently polling it lower than their Knesset strength, but they still are the top party. And I think that's a combination of historic uh, reasons. Likud is a very old party. It has uh, a long-standing, you know, multiple generation a uh, sort of core constituency who support them practically as a matter of identity. You know, in the way we used to ask in polls years ago, which party d- you know represents your identity? We used to ask that question. We called it party ID. And there aren't too many parties you can ask that for in Israel, because as you point out, so many of them are new or gone or collapsed or were pop-up parties or merged or broke up. But Likud is one of the oldest and most stable parties in the Israeli political system. So there's a historic vote for Likud. People pass it on for com- communities and over generations. In addition to that, Netanyahu personally has this aura. Uh, you know, many people think that the, he's irreplaceable. <clears throat> um, there is a term, rak bibi, you know, only bibi that his supporters say, which, by which they mean. And I don't think it's fair to just pin this on a sort of cult of personality. I think that's uh, dismissive of voters' ability to really, you know, line up or list what they consider to be his achievements and his talents. They like the direction the country's going in. They believe that he's good on the economy. They believe he's good on foreign relations. They believe he hasn't given in to the Palestinians. They love that he speaks English well and can, you know, looks like a statesman all around the world. They think he's managed corona relatively well, and let's face it, he uh, has undertaken you know, a a really an audacious vaccination campaign. He never lets us forget it. He manipulates it, you know, fairly openly. And, you know, some would say shamelessly for political purposes. But the fact is, and I don't want to gloat because I take the problem of the vaccine in the U.S. very seriously, but I've been vaccinated. Everybody I know has been vaccinated except for the anti-vaxxers, and we do have them, but that's a real achievement. Israel is going to start opening up next week uh, more extensively, I think maybe too fast again, but There's lots of criticism of how he's managed it. And he, and there's been, you know, many things have have been practically a debacle in Israel in terms of management, but his voters think that overall he's done a good job on this, like all the other areas that I just listed. And they think he's the only one capable of managing the circus of Israeli politics. And to be honest, I'm not sure if I disagree with them on that because, you know, this rough and tumble bizarre fragmented coalition system and this fragmented party system and these you know sandbox intrigues i mean he is generally not one step ahead three or four steps ahead of right. everyone
0: no so it's interesting you talked about the the element of res- of sort of resentment and and uh, you know victimization because it's in, it's you know you think about how they could actually got into power in the first place i mean Right, the first 20, 30 years of Israeli, Israeli politics, the Labor Party basically dominated, Israeli, which is a left wing socialist party, dominated. Almost thirty. The, almost thirty. Right, and then in uh, nineteen seventy seven, Likud finally wins a, pre- a parliamentary election, and they do it by really you know playing on resentment that Sephardic Jews, Jews that come from you know uh, Arab states, um, have toward you know European Jews, Ashkenazi Jews in Israel, and that's really you know that was and Begin of course. This is interesting because it was Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister at the time, was the ultimate uh, Ashkenazi Jew. Uh, his family was killed in the Holocaust. He came from Poland, and yet, you know, uh, he he really mined that kind of sense of resentment among among Sephardic voters to get to 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 you know, propel his power, his party into power. And it seems as though that kind of resentment that that he worked, he mined forty five years ago, is still a useful tool for Likud and for Bibi to maintain his political strength.
1: It is, and in many ways Likud in general. I mean, all of their leaders represent that. They've never had a Mizrahi leader. Mizrahi is another yes. word uh, that we use for Sfardi. Uh, Labor, the Labor Party, by the way, which is always on the defensive because of those historic reasons, being dominated by the old Ashkenazi elite and and having been genuinely a very exclusivist party and racist. Let's let's oh let's say it. I mean, Labor enacted policies that were racist absolutely against Palestinian citizens of Israel, not to mention Palestinians who are not in Israel, but, of, but no less towards Mizrahi Jews. So I, I don't wanna, um, again, I don't wanna diminish these grievances as if they're a matter of psychological perceptions. They were very real, they were rooted in policies and labor is, was punished for that. Um, now, since then, labor has been doing, trying to do some sort of penance, of course, it's often strategic penance and they've had um, in a way, well, two Mizrahi leaders, although actually three and maybe four, because one of those two had two different terms. That's Amir Peretz, one of the more recent leaders, um, Abigabai. And for a brief phase, we had one leader who was a temporary leader who was also uh, of Mizrahi background. I think he was of an Iraqi background, if I'm not mistaken, Fuad ben Eliezer. But um, the point is, labor has had many more Mizrahi leaders than Likud because Likud has had none but it is what Likud represents in the Israeli right. you know, historic uh, evolution of the country. And um, they, you know, really, uh, Likud became the home. You know, when I say identity, I mean, Likud became the home for those people who had been essentially pushed out of the political, social, uh, and cultural institutions of Israeli society. They understood it. They uh, had a huge field presence at the time and really reached out what we call the branches, you know, that go all around the country, um, gathering votes and doing community activism. And that's why you have these, histori- these generations that are so loyal to Likud. Uh, Netanyahu, I think, added onto that history, uh, an element of, of the modern populist, nationalist populist leader. In other words, tapping into those grievances, um, kind of fusing them with his personal political fortunes, not just saying, I represent you, but any criticism of me, Netanyahu, criticism. is just an extension of yeah. what they've been trying to do to you. Therefore, if my victory is your victory, and therefore it's much more—I mean, Begin was personalized. You know, if you read commentary from the 1970s and 80s, uh, you know, uh, political analysts were aghast at the populist style, you know, of, of Begin's speeches. But Netanyahu made it personal. Populism—it's about him. If he gets criticized it's criticism against them. If he goes down in the elections, it's them trying to run over the will of the people. So I do think that adds another dimension. Plus he sees everything, one more point, he sees everything in terms of us and the enemy. So that's another classic you know, pl- uh, page from the P- populist playbook.
0: Yeah, and it's so similar to to what you see in America with the Republican party, right? I mean, you have a Republican party dominated by people for the most part, I think of like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz who went to Ivy League schools, went to Harvard, went to Yale, went to Princeton, uh, Donald Trump went to Penn, uh, very wealthy obviously, but who really uh, you know, traffic in the language of the working class even though their, their policies actually hurt the working class. Um, but they play in that kind of sense of resentment and victimization the same way that Bibi has done in Israel. It's a really interesting element of sort of populist politics in which you know, there's, you know, there's not a working class Republican uh, who's going to become? Who's going to be a nominee of that party anytime soon? Uh, uh, you know, generally speaking, it's sort of uh, wealthy, uh, you know, uh, uh, well-educated, you know, Republicans, usually up from more of the established wing of the party. Um, so it's sort of a very similar kind of parallel to what we see in America now. I'm now uh, we're talking about Bibi, but the question, I guess, is is anybody okay? So now that Benny, we've said Benny Gantz has basically been pushed to the side. So who who is the major leader and what is the major party? that is challenging Bibi uh, this, uh, this election cycle.
1: Yeah, well, since we're talking right now, uh, the top challenger is Yair Lapid. He represents what Israelis view as a centrist party, leaning a little more to the left than to the right in Israeli perceptions. I'm not making a judgment just yet on his policies because I consider them center leaning right from where I stand, but that's personal. Israeli the Israeli voter sees him as a centrist party with maybe leftish leanings because it's mostly uh, you know a party representing secular people and secular you know a sense of separation of religion and state uh, kind of mums the word or a sort of obfuscation of hard hard and fast positions on the Israeli Palestinian conflict while giving you know some sort of lip service to the two state solution but not making it front and center um, and generally representing middle class concerns and yet Yair Lapid's party really grew uh, or drew its strength. It was established actually in 2012, following Israel's kind of Occupy Wall Street movement, which started before Occupy Wall Street by a few months, let's say, um, back in 2011. And capitalizing on that, Yair Lapid established this party. He got 19 seats, again, out of 120, that's a lot, in his very first election. His fortunes went up and down. He merged with Benny Gantz uh, for, to create Blue and White. So he was, they were running together with a few other leaders. And then when blue and white went into the coalition uh, with Netanyahu, they broke up again. And Yesha Tid is now basically taking all of those votes that were previously blue and white voters um, are mostly going to Yair Lapid's party. He's currently polling at, well, 18, 19 seats roughly, which which puts him in second place behind Likud by about 10 seats on average. I will say that tonight, hot off the press, as we're talking, I did see the first poll uh, from from our uh, public broadcaster on channel 10 uh, sorry channel channel 1 or now it's called channel 11 doesn't matter it's channel 11 um, right. no but this is an interesting story in itself about why because it's actually run by a private corporation although it is the state television but their poll today showed for the first time yet you year lapide at 20 seats which is you know for those of us who are watching every single you know degree of change in the polls that's the first time it's been that high and you know it it could indicate a trajectory because lapide has been basically on the rise since the elections were called when the elections were called he was running much lower you know 12 13 and then he he just started climbing and climbing and now why do you think 20. why
0: do you think that is it's because he's a the, the best alternative to Bibi?
1: what does the best alternative actually mean it's really a matter of which voters go <laughs> where you know right. again his policies they can be they are often criticized for being you know murky but he has captured that the vast bulk of those votes that went to blue and white which were essentially votes of people on the Israeli self-defined center. So I, I say center, I say that self-consciously. I'm not calling them center. They're calling themselves centrist or center-leaning left. And many left-wingers voted for blue and white and now Lapid for strategic reasons. They may not think he's the most ideologically aligned with where they are, but they really think that nothing in the, in the, in the country will change until Netanyahu's gone. We talked about the pro-Netanyahu figures. We didn't really talk about the very strong animating force of anti netanyahu uh, figures, who, by the way, outnumber Netanyahu's supporters uh, in every poll, including the one out tonight. But they're, you know, regularly show that a majority of Israelis do not want Netanyahu to continue being prime minister. Mm. And to, you know, by the poll that just was uh, released today, it was 55%. That's a pretty typical figure.
0: That's, that's a large number. I That's a large number. Yeah.
1: That's a large number. But the opposite is very logical. About 45%. Would like Netanyahu to continue being prime minister. They don't all vote for him because of the fragmented party system. He gets about, Netanyahu gets about 25 to 29 percent of the vote, but he always gets between 40 and 44 or 5 percent approval rating uh, in general before corona. Now that number may sound familiar to American listeners who were following President Trump's ratings. Right. Very similar. So just to continue those parallels, um, but the point is that everybody else is thinking to them, you know, everybody who's against Netanyahu, that, that majority, are saying, do we vote for a party that really reflects our ideology? Because there's lots of choices out there. Or do we vote for the party that we think is most likely to actually win the election or be strong enough? Because you don't have to be the biggest party to form the next government. You, are the, you need to be the party that has the greatest number of other parties recommending you to lead the coalition. So th- I see you shaking your head. I know it's it, it is complicated, but for example, just to illustrate, if Lapid gets 20 seats, he's certainly not going to be the biggest party. Netanyahu right. will get 29 or 30 or maybe even the surprise above 30, which is what happened in the other cycles. But if Lapid has more parties who say we would rather go into a coalition with him, and when I say parties, I mean uh, it, it 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 really mat- what really matters is how many MKs, members of Knesset, they right. represent, right? If they if he can get the party leaders to recommend him to lead the coalition, adding up to over to 61, then it doesn't matter that he's not the biggest party. And so he's best positioned to do that, except that he's not really because all the other parties who might go into a coalition with him, (laughs) uh, two of them, two of the biggest ones, which we can talk about, challengers to Netanyahu from the right, have already said, we refuse to go into a coalition if it's led by Lapid. So, so it gets very complicated.
0: So let's talk about the, Now, th- it's interesting because it really does come down to, and, and tell me if I'm wrong here, that this election and pretty much every election you've had since 2019 has really been about Benjamin Netanyahu, has been about those who want to see him remain in power and those who don't. And uh, it seems a big part of the problem is that those who don't uh, have been unable to coalesce around one candidate and one party that could theoretically topple him. I, I, I guess you could say that the Gans was the closest one to it in blue and white, but you know, obviously that didn't fully materialize. So let's talk about these other two right-wing parties. And there's a new one that's very interesting that broke away from Likuz. You talk a little bit about that party.
1: Yeah, that's uh, a party led by a guy named Gideon Saar. He is uh, compared to the party uh, blue and white which, which established itself just ahead, just in time to run in elections. Um, and was led by a guy, Benny Gantz, who came from the army, who was, you know, he was chief of staff of the IDF. He didn't have a day of political experience in his life before forming Blue and White. So I'm just gonna put that out there. It's basically like saying, I wanna be president of the US and I've never served any political position. So I, you know, on some some level, it's not totally surprising that he failed. Yes. But Gideon Sar, by contrast, is a longtime Likud member. He's a very savvy politician. He's held two different ministerial positions. He's been chief of, uh, was he chief of staff? He's been an advisor to prime ministers. Um, He worked under Ariel Sharon. He's worked under Netanyahu. He's protege of some of the top leaders in the country. He's much more savvy than Benny Gantz could ever be. And so I think when he established his party as a breakaway from Likud, it was the first time in a long time that anybody had challenged Netanyahu seriously from within the right wing and Benny Gantz, as attractive as he was for the center and the left, and he was successful at coalescing you know, all those fragmented center and left uh, political communities around him, ultimately there aren't enough center and left voters in the country to get a majority. They only represent together just over 40% of the voters, 40, 45%. Um, so when I said there's 55% who want Netanyahu out, that includes some right-wingers. And you know, what all the center-left parties would have had to do was pull them over to them, which was unnatural because they don't really want to vote for centrist parties, those moderate, those right-wingers who want Netanyahu out. So this makes perfect strategic sense. Somebody from deep within the right-wing camp whose credits are unassailable in terms of you know, representing true right-wing opinions. In many ways, Gidon Saar's policies and things he has represented and stood for over the years are even to the right of Netanyahu. So he has lots of cred, you know, cachet on the right <clears throat> to say, <clears throat> okay, if you're right-wing and you don't really want Netanyahu to continue being prime minister, I am your, your genuine alternative. It was a very promising idea. He broke away from Likud. There was a precedent for it. Ariel Sharon in 2006, ahead of the elections at that time, or maybe it must've been late 2005 when he actually made the move, broke away from Likud, basically destroyed the party. I mean, Likud got its lowest votes ever during the time Ariel Sharon's party existed because Ariel Sharon brought all of his credibility with him. Um, and you know, <clears throat> major segments of the Likud simply shifted to him. Giron Tsar basically was trying to do something like that. And it looked <clears throat> promising at first from his perspective because polls were favorable. He was polling in the upper teens, which for a brand new party is a lot, for any party is a lot in Israel, given what I told you before about the numbers. <clears throat> Um, and then a strange thing happened, which is that over the, you know, over the course of a few weeks, really, um, pretty much when the party lists were finalized and they had to submit them to the central election committee and no more jockeying and wrangling and negotiating and fragmenting and establishing new parties, when all of that was over and the parties, party lists were final, pretty much ever since then, Gidon Tsar's party has been declining incrementally, but steadily in a downward trend. And, uh, He has been stuck at around 13 or 14 seats, which puts him at third place, well behind Likud, um, and not really positioned to form a government. Uh, And in fact, the poll that I just mentioned tonight also was unprecedented because it showed Gideon Saar down to 12 seats. Okay, one poll, I I don't know, I never take one poll too seriously, but it does follow the trend. So what's happening here? I think what happened is that Gideon Saar is running on a ticket of replacing Netanyahu. And as we as you pointed out correctly, uh, the framing of this election is all about whether Netanyahu continues in power or not, which has been similar to the framing of the previous three elections. And so what we're seeing is that right wingers who are mostly committed to Netanyahu, most of them, there's some small portion who are not, and that's who's voting for Saar, but not enough of them. What he's really doing is sucking votes out of the center and left wing camp, primarily from the center. I don't think too many left wingers are going to vote for him, but... You know, here's where there's an interesting disconnect. If you judge parties in Israel today based who, the parties that are running based on their ideological policies, you know that what they what their leaders and and representatives stand for, uh, the right wing parties altogether are polling on average at between 78 and 80 seats out of 120. Wow. But that doesn't represent the actual percentage of right wing voters.
0: That's interesting.
1: The percentage of right wing voters should give them about 65 seats. Why are they polling so far ahead. I explain it because Gideon Saar is running on a platform of overthrowing Netanyahu, but he's not, you know, so he's really taking votes from the center and maybe a little bit from the left, although mostly from the center. Um, And those few, you know, few right wing votes, but the point is people whose personal ideology is more centrist, at least when they define themselves in surveys they're voting for far right-wing parties because they, re- they, they are so committed to getting Netanyahu out. And they have decided strategically that voting for a right-wing party doesn't reflect their ideology, but that they have to get Netanyahu out.
0: But, but by your argument-
1: So basically they, they've by, pulled but, Saar into the anti-Netanyahu camp.
0: But by voting for Saar and not voting for say Lapide or some other center-left center, center party, they are actually helping Netanyahu?
1: It's not entirely clear because uh, Netanyahu, uh, if you look at just the parties, like I, I said this before, but let me go back to it. If you look at just the parties that are currently pledging only to go into a coalition under Netanyahu, again, he only has about 58 seats, still not a majority for a coalition. If all the other parties got together, they have 62 Didn't at say this, least.
0: But he's telling you that Saar wouldn't join a coalition with Lapid.
1: He wouldn't join a government led by Lapid. They've been <laughs> very careful about their wording. If you miss one word, you lose the entire thread of Israeli so who politics. who
0: would he go into a government led by? Gideon Sarai. Himself.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he may get. have some, some sort of a
0: cutthroat, pack. To use your word, cutthroat nature Israeli politics because ideology often takes a backseat to one's personal ambitions.
1: Yes, but I will say this, I think in defense of the of these contradictions, I mean, you know, I've had a long a long running conversation this week with somebody who thinks this shouldn't be a defense. But I think from, you know, to try to explain how the Israeli voters see it. Um, it's not just about completely forsaking ideology, I think that they really view Netanyahu as somebody who's blocking any progress towards their genuine ideology. So let's say you're a left winger, there are left wingers who are going to vote for Gidon Saar, I don't think that many, but still, they're saying, Anything that gets Netanyahu out can release this country from the grip of somebody who's going in the direction, I don't think this country wants to take. So, so exactly. they don't want the country to take. So get him out, get somebody else in, and then everything is more open. And maybe we can you know, eventually get down ar- around to a different ideology. So
0: if for example, Gideon Saar got more votes, more seats than Lapid, uh, say he was the second biggest vote getter, would Lapid then join Gideon Tsar's party? As I assume
1: case. so, yeah, yeah, I assume so. But let me just point out when you ask really what's gonna happen, I mean, Gidon Ansar has said he won't sit in a government under or led by Yair Lapid, but <clears throat> he does have a good relationship with another party to the still further right.
0: Yes. I mean, this that.
1: gets into the narcissism of small differences, but there are two right-wing parties between Likud and the ultra-Orthodox religious parties. Uh, Gidon Sars is one, and you know, some people may think that his party is similar to Likud in its ideology. I place them further to the right a little bit, but they're trying to portray themselves as similar to Likud. The other party that I'm talking about is Naftali Bennett's party. Uh, it's called Yamina. It's taken various forms over the over the last few cycles. Uh, it, he started out as the leader of a nationalist Jewish religious party, uh, and, and a historic party. And it's, again, you know, I won't go into all the party. Um, incarnations. But now he's the leader of this party together with another prominent figure, uh, Ayelet Sheked, who was our previous justice minister in the in the government between 2015 and 2019. And the two of them basically represent this, you know, they lead this party, which has been up until now what we call a sector party, meaning that it mainly represented very nationalist Jewish uh, Israelis, very nationalist right wing Jewish Israelis, mostly settlers. So it was considered a niche party. It represented this one small portion of Israeli society, uh, the national religious community in Israel. Uh, out of the entire electorate, Jews and Arabs together is, you know, barely 10 percent, and the settlers are only about 4 percent of Israeli society. So they they actually went under the threshold in the first election in April, but they managed to, you know, they so basically was the second election for them was a godsend because they squeaked by, um, and that party, Naftali Bennett, led by Naftali Bennett has been the chief competitor to Likud ever uh, up until Gidon Saar came around. So you can imagine, you know, there was a point back in the summer when Aftali Bennett's party was polling at about 20 seats, even crossing 20 seats.
0: Wow. I didn't realize that's amazing. Yeah.
1: For a short phase. Uh, But the the fact that he was second in the polls was quite a long phase. Um, And when Likud declined briefly, there was almost a sense that they might be closing the gap. Um, You know, Gideon Saar establishes party, and if Tali Bennett tumbled down, he's now yeah. polling at 11 or 12 seats. This is the humiliation of Israeli politics.
0: Um, now, let me. So, I wanna, but I, yeah. jump, jump a little bit to the to the left, if I might. Now mm-hmm. we've talked a lot about right wing parties, centrist parties. What about the left wing parties in Israel? For example, Labor, which has you know been around since the before the state even was created. And used to obviously, you know, have uh, the prime ministership. What is happening to labor? Happening to the left in general in Israel?
1: What's happening to the left is a is a long story of decades and and you know many decades. I mean, we could say the left was in decline before it ever started, given what, you know, the levels of number of contradictions that those parties represented in their platforms and in their actual policies. But let's say for our purposes, I think the main thing to understand is that if you ask Israelis how they define themselves. You get about 20% of the electorate, Jews and Arabs together over the age of 18, between 18 and 22%, leveling off at around 19 or 20% usually, who define themselves as left wing or moderate left. So they're, for one thing, they're a very limited minority in Israel. Um, and now I'm gonna do something that might sound strange, but I'm gonna uh, analyze for a minute. Uh, Jewish and Arab voters separately. And the reason I do that is because they have different levels of turnout. So if you just look at the entire population, 20% sounds like a significant amount. You would say left-wing parties should get, you know, 23, 24 parliamentary seats. But usually the Arab Palestinian citizens of Israel vote at a lower rate of turnout, uh, which means that more of the electorate is Jewish. Uh, In any case, the Jews are, you know, maybe 77, 78% of the electorate you could look at it as over 80% of the electorate. And when there's very low turnout, by one calculation, a few cycles ago, I calculated it's really 90% of the elector of the electorate, of the elect, of the the voters who turn out are Jews. So for that, you have to look at the two dynamics separately. And among Jews, self-defined left or moderate left really only comes out to 12 to 15%. So it's really a very limited uh, constituency. how many parties can they sustain? Not very many. Uh, The joint list as it's called is um, sort of amalgam of three different parties at this point.
0: I want to hold off there. I want to hold list, but not quite yet. Okay, so so I'll just stick with the Zionist
1: left-wing parties which are labor and merits. And that's what I said, like if those parties, the vast majority of their voters are Jewish and there's only about 12 to 15% of Jews who self-identify as left-wing or moderate left, of that 12 to 15%, a large portion of them will vote, as we say, strategically for the party they think is most likely to be able to replace Netanyahu, meaning Yair Lapid, that big party running now at 18, 19 seats.
0: So so basically, labor has kind of been devastated by the fact that in the sense that people wanna get rid of BB, and they don't see a vote for Mm -hmm. labor or for merits as being a way to achieve that goal.
1: Well, I mean, that's not rocket science. I mean, merits is barely crossing the electoral threshold in in several polls that have come out in the last few weeks merits falls below the voter threshold. And again, merits is considered further left than labor. They really stand for a wide range of socially liberal policies, um, stronger investment in the welfare state and social democratic policies. Um, leaning towards socialism, sort of the Bernie Sanders, you would say, although not as kind of innovative as Bernie Sanders was in American politics because Merits has been around for you know, a long time. They're kind of a fixture of Israeli society. Um, they're you know, uh, generally taking the lead on progressive policies, you know, LGBT rights and environmental stuff. And they take a left-wing position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, not terribly far left, just vocally and openly supporting a two-state solution. But that is generally typed in Israeli society as so far left, that you know, right-wingers don't even think about them. Well, see, and Meretz is in danger of falling under the threshold. Even labor was polling under the electoral threshold right up until uh, a few days before the party lists were finalized and they held a primary and voted and elected for themselves a new party leader. Merav Mikhaeli, she is the only woman leader now currently running uh, as leader of a party uh, in the top you know, parties that we mentioned before with likelihood of crossing the threshold. She is a well-known figure in Israeli society. She's been, she's already been in Knesset for several terms in a row now. Before that, she was a uh, prominent television personality. She had, you know, talk shows, she's been an actress, she, but not some, really she's known for her talk shows and for her um, political activism, specific social activism.
0: So, but let me, but okay, I, I, I mean, I actually, I, she... I think she's a very actually impressive individual, interesting interesting candidate. But I, I think one thing you mentioned that I wanna to just touch on for a second is that, well, I think one thing that many, a lot of American Jews or American listeners, or Americans interested in the Israeli politics may not understand is that the, the Palestinian conflict, which is how they tend to view Israel, that's the like sort of the prism of which they view Israel is not really an issue in this campaign. It hasn't been for a long time mm-hmm. yet. However, the party like Meretz or like labor is defined negatively and impacted I'd say negatively by the fact that they are seen as a party that is supportive of a two-state solution. Is that absolutely correct what's going on here?
1: It's very correct and the only the only um clarification I would make and this is not your fault I mean I think a lot of people see it this way including in Israel obviously on the surface the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not part of this campaign which is interesting because last time for the last three elections it was not in the sense of resolving it in the sense of israel's maximalist positions right the last three campaigns it was on the agenda because israel was uh talking about annexation of the west bank in this election we're not talking about any of that so on one level you're absolutely correct it's not on the agenda but to understand israeli politics you have to realize it's always on the agenda it hovers over everything so when people who support netanyahu when you ask them why they say He's good at the economy, he's good at foreign affairs and he doesn't give in to the Arabs or he doesn't give in to the Palestinians. Often the you know, people on the right wing won't use the term Palestinians, but that's always there. And they will say in the very same breath, God forbid Israel should go back to being run by a labor government because we'll have bombs going off in the street. A reference to the Oslo years, right. uh, the years when Israel was working on the Oslo peace process. And there, were, there was a wave of suicide bombings in the 1990s perpetrated by uh, you know mostly Hamas. And in the second intifada, after Ehud Barak tried to negotiate with Yasser Arafat, they failed to reach uh, a, a two-state solution, which was the prominent paradigm at the time. Uh, the next thing that happened was the negotiations collapsed. The second intifada broke out, and leading to another wave of suicide bombings, Israelis blame two figures for that. They blame the Palestinians at large, and they blame. Labor governments, right. and by extension, the entire Israeli left, and anybody who prominently supports a two-state solution. So, you know, as somebody who's worked on labor campaigns and on campaigns for merits, you know, in some ways, or, or for voters beyond a certain position in the center, if they're even, you know, a, 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 you know, millimeter to the right of center, you can't penetrate that image. The only thing they see is left equals. Giving giving into Palestinians and Palestinians are responsible for terrorism. That's what left wing leadership does the campaign. They are impervious to any campaign messages. So the left wing parties are, are, you know, are left to target a very, very limited of, uh, segment of the Israeli public that's even open to hearing what they have to say, yeah, or even you know, open to remind to remembering what they've done in Knesset as legislators.
0: It's it's interesting, you know, you bring that because I, I always try to explain this to Americans who don't have a deep understanding of Israeli really politics. both. You know, I, it's funny, because we talk about Netanyahu, and I remember back in 1999, when he lost um, election to Ehud Barak, and he lost decisively. And you remember, I worked on that
1: campaign, it was my first campaign. campaign.
0: But I remember talking- Winning
1: campaign, I worked on the winning campaign.
0: Uh, yes, right, and and it was, that was, I believe, still when they had, briefly had the period where you had direct election for prime minister. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember talking to a friend uh, that night, I was at the East Village in, in New York and saying, well, BB's done, right? This is an, <laughs> Israelis want, you know, peace um, and they want a, a resolution to the conflict. Um, and I think that's not totally inaccurate. And yet we see now, and, and what's happened in sort of, I guess, 20 years since then is they've gone against that. And I think, I mean, a big part of it is, as you referenced this earlier, was the second intifada. And I always try to explain to people like who don't understand the way politics that like, that was a decisive moment in Arab Israel in the, in the in the conflict between israelis and palestinians and and you know whether it's true or not i, I know so many israelis who will say to me that was the point they gave up on peace to the palestinians because they, sure. they decided that they made all these concessions they tried to make peace and the response was it basically you know a, almost constant barrage for months and and months of years was, actually years, years. you're right several, i'm sorry several
1: years it was basically 2000 late 2000 2001 2002 through two thousand three, there was, uh, you know, that was those were the peak years of suicide bombings. And let me tell you, I lived here throughout that time. It was a terrible time. I will also say that Israelis only ever see the Israeli side of it. I mean, there's no good, there, there's no other side of suicide bombing. Let me get that straight, or any violence, exactly. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But in terms of the political dynamics that led to the failure of those negotiations, that's what we have to realize. Israelis only ever saw the Israeli side of it, which is natural because they're hearing from their leaders and they certainly don't understand anything about how Palestinians live and were living first before the Oslo agreements and ironically and tragically um, after the Oslo agreements. What most Israelis don't realize is that the Oslo agreements made life worse for Palestinians on many, in many levels. Maybe it gave them hope that they would one day have a state, but their, their material conditions declined pretty quickly because of the... Uh, permit regime, the limitations on movement, breaking up the West Bank into three into different sections where they had different uh, permission of where they could go or not go within the West Bank, uh, limited economic opportunities, the Paris Protocol. There are many reasons why their uh, their economy and their material circumstances declined. Um, they maybe had this hope that they would eventually get to a state and have self-determination, but the Palestinian authority as it was created was highly circumscribed. So many felt that they were basically being run by an authority that quickly became corrupt uh, because it didn't have real power, so it you know, fed off of corruption. Um, and we're just waiting to achieve independent statehood for the seven years between 1993 and 2000, only to see Israelis say, sure, let's negotiate again. Uh, those negotiations, you know, I, and I'm really just trying to show the other side of the picture that many people yeah. may not know, which is that yeah. from the Israeli perspective, they offered everything and the Palestinians rejected it from the Palestinians' perspective, right. the offer looked a lot to them, like an ongoing set of, you know, restricted, circumscribed, semi-autonomous, not really independent, uh, you know, final status, which would be permanent. Um, and that also, you know, dashed many of their symbolic hopes in terms of the right of return issue. And I'm not really here to judge it, but I do think that it's worth understanding Israelis only saw the Antifada.
0: Yes, uh, of course, and I, I think, uh, you know, but I, I make the point only just to, to point out that you had a period after 93, uh, it, actually you could argue even including the 92 election uh, when, when Yitzhak Rabin was elected, uh, up until about 99, 2000, in which you had a pretty strong, con- I, reasonably reasonable consensus in the country in support of two-state solutions, supportive resolution of the Palestinians, and in which, uh, you know, uh, the Hamas' uh, efforts to, to derail negotiations uh, succeeded in part because they alienated Israelis but also gave power to right-wing leaders like Benjamin Netanyahu and you know we talk about I mean I, I think back about Israeli politics and I think about the 1996 election in Israel which is maybe the decisive moment when um, Shimon Peres running after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin you know narrowly lost re-election uh, elections um, elections yeah election against um, Netanyahu and in large part because there had been a wave of bombings uh, in Israel beforehand, and BB, you know, Netanyahu ran against, ran on this idea of fighting security. And that when that moment was lost, uh, and in which the, the peace process kind of fell apart uh, in the years in which Netanyahu was in power, that it was hard to put the pieces back together again. And, and you know, people talk about now two state solution. It's just hard to, I think the level of distrust is so great. And there is such, there is really no political upside for Israeli political leader to push forward on. Uh, talk to the Palestinians because there really, as, as I think you point out, there's not a real consensus or real support for it in Israel right now. In the abstract there's support for it, but specifically there really isn't support for it.
1: Okay, let me bring out some of my public opinion uh, wonkiness on this stuff. Uh, it, it, it is a little bit of, it, it's, it's, it's not entirely accurate to say there was a reasonable consensus over the two-state solution because Israeli pollsters didn't test the idea of a two state solution. That's true. That's a good point. In yes. that form, even until about 2001 That's right. or two. I mean, it, the, the, the term itself, and the term is important because it's a concept, really only penetrated Israeli consciousness after the Camp David negotiations in 2000. Before that, there were surveys asking about the establishment of a Palestinian state, not in the sense of a two state solution, but still a valid indicator. And they did rise over the course of the 1990s but only starting from 1993. Up until 1993, it was a minority, a small minority, 20, 25%, maybe 29%. After the Oslo Accords, you're absolutely correct that the support started to rise over the course of the 1990s. Um, A majority, it was never a big majority. It it, it rose to over the 50% mark, barely. And then when we started testing the two-state solution uh, as a concept, that kind of climbed higher over the course of the 2000s even by the way remaining a majority during the second intifada on the israeli side but that i see i would call that a window why do i say that because by 2010 right now if you look at the data from 2010 to now you know 11 years later it's been on an incre- steady incremental decline on both sides by the way on the israeli side and the palestinian side never mind that what israelis and palestinians mean by a two state solution is quite different. Quite so you different. can say Israelis had a general consensus for a two-state solution under the terms that were acceptable to right. Israelis. And yeah, if and you I go say, into those terms.
0: In the, in the abstract, they support two-state solution.
1: No, I, I want to make it clear. There were also very detailed versions of a two-state solution that reached a majority of support for Israelis barely, barely. Because the moment you talk about dividing Jerusalem and any sort of compromise on right of return, that majority could only ever be had with first of all, Jewish and Arab society together because the Jewish majority was never really there, even though it came close. Um, and that's something we really have to keep in mind. This idea that Israelis embraced a two-state solution is not accurate. Right. It's much more uh, complicated than that. And generally, there's not a huge majority, although there was a majority for the concept in the abstract, as you correctly point out. But it was, I call it, you know, a 10 or 12 or 13 year window because from 2010 onward, it has been declining. It was still a majority up until... About two years ago, in my polling, together with my Palestinian colleague Khalil Shikaki, it has gone below a majority on both sides, <clears throat> starting about two years ago. And it, you know, support for the two-state solution, in the way that we test it in the abstract, but in our, uh, you know, formulation of the question, now stands at about forty-three percent, forty-two percent on both sides.
0: Right. So we need to finish up. We've been talking for a long time. So I want to ask you one quick question, though, because this has been intriguing to me, um, and we didn't touch on the on the joint list and the Arab parties which is actually a pretty major feature of Israeli politics but maybe maybe for the next conversation we'll talk about that um I wanted to you raised something in one of your your podcasts and by the way I recommend everybody to listen to uh Dahlia and and podcast. tell me again the name election overdose election overdose I, w- I will put it in the uh in the in the uh, uh article. Show notes. yes thank you um so one thing you mentioned is that there have been uh America, Israel has imported some elements of, is, of American campaigns into Israel, but not the good parts. Um, they, they <laughs> what are the probably, good parts? What are the good that's, parts? that's kind of always the case, actually, but this is actually true now. Um, that there's been this talk about voter conspiracies and voter fraud. They basically brought some of the right wing conspiracy theories that the right has glommed onto in the US into Israel. Can you talk a little bit about how that's unfolding in Israel?
1: Yeah, I will. Let me just say, though, uh, Israel's been importing American campaign yes. elements for decades.
0: Decades. Going Since back, to the, 19, 70s,
1: even, going back to the 1960s, even the first oh, American okay. consultant. Nobody remembers that person's name, but there's evidence. Uh, but really mostly from the early 80s right, or mid-80s and onwards. And of course, we were all part of that because I worked with my Great mentor Stan Greenberg, who uh, on the nineteen ninety nine campaign, Arthur Finkelstein worked here for Netanyahu in nineteen ninety six, and in later years for other people uh, in the Israeli political system. So there's many elements about Israeli campaigns that are drawn from America directly or indirectly, um, and I say that because I do think that's part of the story. In other words, this question about voter fraud has really never been an issue in Israeli elections. You know, like every democracy, we have poll watchers, we have um, You know a sort of committee at every poll with uh people who represent all the different parties or whoever signs up for that for any given ballot station you know we have we have very strong electoral we have we have a strong electoral institution we have high turnout uh we've never had an election that was seriously challenged or we've never seen any evidence of extensive fraud again there are always anecdotes of particular problems in any one ballot station but that's normal in every democracy what we saw in um i believe it was the april elections the first, the, cool. the April election in twenty nineteen was yeah. the first time um, accusations coming naturally from the right about fraud in the Arab community, but they didn't actually, you know, build up any serious accusations. What they did was go around to some of the polling stations where Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel vote, and just stick cameras in them, which was ruled by the Central Election Committee to be against electoral regulations, and that generated uh, a huge controversy because what it really, uh, what what it was understood to mean was basically a matter of voter intimidation. Why is that so intimidating? Well, first of all, nobody likes to have a camera stuck in their, in their private voting booth. Right. Uh, but even more so, when you come from a population that was living under a military government until 1966. Now, that sounds like a long time ago, but of, as we, we all know, collective memory is passed down. The, the Arab Palestinian population in Israel-
0: Especially in the Arab-Israeli conflict.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, the ma- one of the major features of living under military rule is surveillance. And yeah. you know the idea of putting cameras in ballot stations was seen as a voter intimidation uh, method. So there was some controversy, but that was just apparently practice for what we're seeing now. And I think what we're seeing now is absolutely inspired by you know the, I'm gonna I'm going use this word advisedly, the cult of Trump. And I say that by contrast to Israeli politics, I don't really think we're looking at a cult-like support for Netanyahu. Some people disagree with me, but I do think there's a stronger argument to be made that Trumpism became a cult largely because they support fictional narratives that, uh, you know, of an imaginary they realm of, of reality. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so the fraud, the fraud uh, accusation in the U.S. was always, how to say it, fraudulent. Yeah. Um but That's correct. Um, and so what's happening here is I think that we're seeing, you know the same Israeli political opportunists say, "Hey, it works there, it can work here too." And you know it's not it shouldn't be a surprise that the group that has been uh, promoting this narrative that there may be fraud and that, you know, kind of priming trying to prime the public just the way Trump tried to prime the public in the US um, is a far right, not just nationalist group. But I call them proto-fascist. And the reason I say that, again, I use that term very advisedly. I, am, I will also maybe reveal that I'm a political scientist as well. Right. I do have a PhD in political science. And I don't say that word lightly. This is an organization that's not just right-wing in terms of you know, greater Israel or supporting settlements, but they're right-wing in terms of policing the discourse in Israel. They have been going around to universities over the years trying to yeah. trap you know, uh, uh, academics they think are too left-wing, um, trying to, re, you know, have student trying to train students to, you know, film their lecturers to catch them in in some sort of unruly political um, content, and so they can then, you know, try to go after them. They publish lists of undesirable academics. So I'm proud to say I was on one of those lists.
0: of intimidation that you're saying.
1: Exactly. So, uh, and and the only, and the other reason why we're allowed to use the word fascist in the same sentence as this organization, which is called Tzu is because. Somebody years ago wrote something like that in social media. Uh, 2 took them to court, suing them for libel for calling them fascists and the court ruled against 2. <laughs> <laughs> that, so,
0: that was a rather stupid lawsuit, I would say.
1: You know, that uh, this is a t- completely tangential conversation but that's not an entirely unusual pattern. Um, okay. I can make this case but I think we don't wanna go down this rabbit hole. The point is 2 is the organization that has been promoting the fraud narrative uh, as if trying to prime the public, the Israeli public in the event that Netanyahu or the right wing doesn't do as well as they should. The, in, the difference is that, again, I think that there is a difference between the Israeli political culture right now and the American political culture right now. I don't think we see the same level of cult worship that we saw to this fraudulent fantasy of, of you know, massive voter theft, right. trying not to use the word over and over again. We, you know, we see Israelis with very, very polarized political attitudes but they tend to be based on an observation, mostly of reality. Okay, yeah. people are looking at, for the most part, the same facts and coming to different conclusions about what they about their preferences, about who's you know who who's right and who's wrong, who has the better ideology. Who, yeah, is for more example, competent.
0: I would imagine the BB supporters are not. They will admit fault with B, that Benjamin Netanyahu. They will admit that he had he's not a perfect individual. With with Trump supporters, I go
1: back to a conversation I had years ago. I think on election day, maybe around I don't know 2009 or something. Maybe it was a taxi driver or somebody, and I, you know, I said, "Who are you going to vote?" I know I hate to admit it, but I'm a public opinion researcher, so when I talk to taxis, it's different. Right. Anyway, I'm just pulling rank. But the point. No, is. I was
0: about to reference one myself with uh, about, the, about the taxi driver. But go ahead, sorry.
1: But whoever it was said to me, "Yeah, I vote Likud. I vote BB. Of course, I vote BB." And I said, "Well, why?" You know, I don't. I'm not judgy in my researcher hat. And the person said, "Well, let me put it this way." It's like smoking. He said, we know he's bad for us. We know he's bad for us, but we do it anyway.
0: We do it anyway. Okay, so last thing, uh, I just want to get one last thing. So uh, is America playing any role in this campaign? And I only ask that question because there was recently a snubgate in which Joe Biden, <laughs> Biden I never, did you just make that up? <laughs> I did make that up. Thank you. Yes, That's impressive. Uh, in which in which Joe, uh, President Biden refused or or I just, I guess, dragged his feet in calling Netanyahu, which was seen as a major scandal because Israel is obviously a close ally of the US. This was seen as purposeful because Biden, like many foreign leaders and like many American leaders, can't stand Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, and also, of course, because Netanyahu basically endorsed uh, Mitt Romney in 2012 and Biden was the ticket as VP. So does so eventually they did, talk, they did talk. Does that play... Will that play any role in this election as far as the, the, the relationship between the US and Israel?
1: I think snubgate itself is over. And I think for, <laughs> no, I really do like the term, it's, it's awesome. Thank you. And, and excuse me, but I would like to say that I think I coined the term during the, those, those weeks of waiting on tinderhooks. I think I coined the term uh, that the American president was Biden his time. Oh, very nice. Very and nice. I did it as spontaneously as you just invented Snuby, in a public conversation, Excellent. Uh, a talk that I was giving. So I think that you know many people thought that was a bit exaggerated anyway, and surely he'll get around to it. And you, and you see that people just filter these things right through their political ideas. So Likud people were saying, oh, they're exaggerating. We're not the most important country in the world. He's got lots of other things on his agenda. Who are we? We're nothing. We think we're everything. Of course, the same people really do think Israel is everything in every other context. But- you know, to them, it was just, you know, the press, the media, the anti-Netanyahu biased liberal media making a mountain out of a molehill. Um, and for the other side of the map, you know, the, the more the centrists, the, the left wingers, the ones who want Netanyahu out, you know, I think that they're just despairing. They thought, okay, yeah, he's not calling, but it's not going to change anything. And they're probably right. However, there's a bigger context. And the bigger context is that everybody knows that Netanyahu, you know, when you say Biden, uh, maybe, is angry or resentful or something annoyed at Netanyahu. I mean, it wasn't just about Netanyahu coming in uh, on the side of Romney, it was about Netanyahu's unrelenting oh, yeah. war on the presidency of Barack Obama. I mean, you have to realize from an Israeli perspective, every single day for eight years, it was biblical in its proportions. Uh, we heard how terrible Obama was for the state of Israel and the Jewish people from here. Roughly. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically, but really every day, practically, it was. This- and, if, and if I remember
0: correctly, wasn't there an incident in which Biden visited in Israel yes. the day he arrived yes. he to announce new settlements?
1: Absolutely happened. So, I, you know, everybody knows that Netanyahu really chose a position not just on campaigns, but against that administration yes. and then embraced the Trump administration so Uh, you know passionately (laughs) and again with this kind of it's it wasn't enough that every day for eight years Netanyahu was telling Israeli public how terrible Obama was it's like the old Jewish joke once Obama was gone all he could say was oh his presidency was so terrible for Israel and isn't it wonderful that we've been released right right uh to you know our our angel our protector In the form of Donald Trump and so Netanyahu made America into a partisan issue that's something that American Jews think about a lot and Israelis interestingly are learning the language that American Jews have been speaking for years about the difference between Israel being a bipartisan issue and a partisan issue up until now only American Jews talked about that stuff but now Israelis are talking about it and there is some concern that Netanyahu went overboard in choosing sides in the American political map maybe this is coming back to bite Israel. Maybe it's not gonna be so good for Israel. I will also uh, point out that Snubgate may be over. I can't help it, I love it, but in a weirdly you know, sort of unrelated way, but the next thing that happened was the International Criminal Court in The Hague has uh, announced that it will proceed with investigations uh, for alleged war crimes by Israel during, uh, on two different levels, but we won't get into the other reasons, But You know, these are claims of Palestinians that Israel should be prosecuted in international courts and that the International Criminal Court has decided can move ahead. It has the jurisdiction. This is extremely sensitive in Israel and it shouldn't be directly related to uh, the U.S. relationship, especially because so far the Biden administration seems to be more tilting on the side of criticizing the court and defending Israel on this. But it does take away a little bit, maybe a little bit, from the sense that Netanyahu is the invincible foreign policy statesman right, right. king in Israel, which really has been seen as his absolute most stunning, uh, you know, political talent in Israel. Even those who don't support Netanyahu give him pretty much unqualified credit for his ability to manage foreign relations so well. Of course, it's not just the U.S. He's you know he's made friends with all sorts of unsavory global leaders. Again, mostly nationalist, authoritarian, populists, but. Um, there's an argument to be made, you know, that he really has had achievements if those are the kinds of achievements you think are good for Israel. And many of the voters here think so. And I think that these two things together, you know, the sort of uncertainty about what kind of relationship he's having with, he'll have with Biden after having played on this partisan divide in America for so long, and maybe Israel's, you know, star waning a little bit in the international community. Uh, maybe it kind of um, is it's, it weakens this in Yahoo a little bit in what was up until now, one of his strongest points.
0: Okay, so we gotta, we gotta jump, but I, I'm just gonna Did ask- we have guys, to?
1: I mean, there's so much more to say.
0: There's like, we could go for another hour easily. There's <laughs> so much talking about. It's really kind of crazy. I mean, this is what I love about talking about Israeli politics, love talking to you about because this is such a, a fertile topic that you can really just spend hours exploring and it's fascinating, but I just wanna sum up. And I know I'm not supposed to ask this question. You're a pollster. You're not supposed to tell me that you're not supposed to answer this or be asked this, but will Bibi... You're going to say Netanyahu it, aren't you? You're going to say prim- it. I'm going to say it because I... I, that's I just know it. I can helpful.
1: see it. I can feel it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> will Bibi Netanyahu be prime minister after this election?
1: Oh my God, you said it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I would like for the record, uh, for the record, I would like to say that I wrote an, an article after the American elections um, in which I argued that predict electoral predictions are really not where polling shines. Yes, it's just not the thing that polls are really great at. And it, depending on pollsters and public opinion research, you know, to always be sort of, you know, profits is really not the best use of polling. But, but I, have, you
0: know I, I know what to do. I have a better way to ask the question. This is I'm going to improve upon my, my earlier question. Do you expect the results of this election to be demonstratively different? Qual- I should say qualitatively different than the last.
1: No, well, uh, I, I know what how you're how saying. How Listen, how I'm how not how how trying how to, to get out of answering the question.
0: Will it be much different than the last three elections?
1: From everything we're seeing now that I said polls aren't so predictive when are as when there's such overwhelming evidence of the trends, you know, the way things are going in terms of the coalition breakdown. Um, we're not talking about a question of well, I should be a little more cautious because small shifts can make a difference in this point. Right. But so far. The electoral dynamics in terms of Netanyahu led coalitions versus coalitions against Netanyahu is showing absolutely no change
0: right. from That's the previous wild. three elections. Yeah. So
1: that doesn't mean we won't see a different outcome. And that has to do with the vagaries of the Israeli political system. The voters are not changing their minds on the issue of Netanyahu versus not Netanyahu. We're seeing the same breakdown of parties. However, what can change is the decision of any one of three or four men. Yeah, those party leaders in the parties we mentioned before, you know, Likud, by Netanyahu, Gidon Sar, the breakaway party from Likud, Naftali Bennett, the further right party, or Yair Lapid, what those men decide, and then some of the smaller parties like Avigdor Lieberman, um, and, you know, Meirav Mikhaeli at the head of labor, but I don't think labor is going to be in the position to be a kingmaker. Right. That's where we can't predict. Pulsars, I think I feel pretty confident saying Likud is going to come in the biggest party right. because it's, you know there, there's no margin of error that can now, account is for it.
0: an open question.
1: Right. But because of the coalition negotiating system, what those people decide to do after the election is a lot more meaningful than the voters, only because the voters have been very consistent this whole time in breaking themselves down according to whether they want Netanyahu to lead the next government or the non-Netanyahu coalition.
0: Now, what I'm not going to ask you because it will take another hour, but what I would love to also know is what happens if BB is found guilty in his trial. It's going to take that,
1: much longer. It's going to take way longer than this election cycle.
0: Yeah, right. But let's say let's say he wins and they found guilty. I mean, we won't. That's going to take much out. longer than that. Because they longer than that, that's true. These things can take forever. Well, listen, that's a whole other conversation. And maybe what we'll do is after 23rd. We'll have you come back on. We'll we'll, maybe do a little shorter conversation. We'll talk about what actually happened. But I feel like we have a good sense, maybe, I hate to say it, of what is going to happen. Anyway, whatever the case is, Dahlia, this was an absolute pleasure. I could do (laughs) two more hours of this easily. I would actually enjoy it, but we have to go. But that would be Israeli
1: exceptionalism. Yeah.
0: (laughs) <laughs> that's right that's right i mean if we were like an israeli conversation this would take that we would go on for several more hours and we would you know get a lot a lot more arguing and talking over each other and so forth but we won't do that we'll just say thank you dahlia for coming on it was a my pleasure. pleasure and thank Great you, pleasure everyone, for listening to the truth and consequences podcast i hope you enjoyed the talk thank you so much bye-bye
1: my pleasure